This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcast every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 on KUCI, 88.9 FM, Irvine, California. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. As liberals wade through the semantics of social security lockbox and other wonky locutions, the right has become harder, meaner, and better at getting out the message. The estate tax became the more menacing death tax, and a contentious education initiative was wrapped in the comforting blanket of No Child Left Behind. In his new book, Talking Right, our guest today, Jeffrey Numberg, explains how by changing the meaning of words like values, government, liberal, faith, and freedom, conservatives have shifted the political center of gravity of the language itself to the right. Numberg is a linguist who teaches at the Berkeley School of Information, is chair of the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary, and also the author of The Way We Talk Now and Going Nuclear. Jeffrey Numberg, welcome to Weekly Signals. Oh, well, thanks a lot for having me. How are you doing today? Oh, not so bad uh, up here in the San Francisco fog. Yeah. Oh, it's foggy up there. We had a little bit of fog down here in Southern California. Right. Do, do you think uh, global warming is setting in? Uh, that's probably it, except this has been, this August has been like this for, <laughs> for, 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 for the last hundred years. Yeah. <laughs> it's when a fog doesn't appear that we start worrying. There yes. you, there you yeah. go. That's really so, so when did this all begin? When did liberalism start to lose faith? Face. Well, you, you can date liberalism be, be, reached its high point in the 1960s, and from then on, it had a lot of problems. Uh, there was Vietnam, which was correctly and widely seen as a liberals' war. The, the failures or perceived failures of the Great Society programs, uh, programs like busing, uh, seemed to many working class whites to be an imposition from uh, middle class and upper middle class liberals who didn't have any personal stake uh, in public education. So there were lots of reasons for the initial uh, collapse of liberalism, but it had a lot to do with uh, Nixon and Agnew, the Southern strategy, and this attempt to woo uh, disaffected uh, white Southern voters and working-class Northern voters uh, from the uh, Democratic Party by portraying it as dominated by upper-middle-class, self-indulgent, elite liberals, and so on. And that really begins in the early 1970s. Well, you, I just want to run uh, one of the phrases. One of the first phrases I ever heard uh, was limousine liberal, and it really stuck. It, I mean, it was one of those phrases that is probably still used today. Right. Well, you may be dating yourself. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Forgive but, me. It goes back to... Um, to uh, 1969, originally, the, the mayoral race between John Lindsay uh, in New York and uh, Mario Procaccino. Lindsay, uh, the patrician-looking representative of Manhattan's east side, the Silk Stocking District, as it's called. Yeah. Procaccino representing the working stiffs in the outer boroughs and, and the charges that these are the liberals who go to work in, in, in limousines. The real shift is when limousine liberal, uh, ten years later, gives way to Volvo liberal. Yeah which is a very different kind of, of, of picture because the Volvo, after all, is a suburban car. It's a car that doesn't cost any more than a, than a Buick or maybe even a Pontiac. Uh, and uh, it's really no different in terms of accessibility from uh, other cars that other Americans might buy. But it depicts the, the liberals as people who buy this safe, ugly car from socialist Sweden merely yeah. because it's... Uh, yeah. Uh, it's book is and, and of course there's this uh, fortuitous gynecological resonance with Volvo that explains why that car was chosen rather than Saab, and it's really the beginning of this sort of lifestyle branding 
that the right undertakes uh, around the late 70s, 1980, and that continues, and that, that's implicit in the, in the title of my, my, my book, uh, which speaks of latte drinking, sushi eating, Volvo driving, New York Times reading, body piercing, etc., Hollywood-loving left-wing liberals. Well, darn it, I was looking forward to saying that. <laughs> oh, welcome. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but... Uh, this is, is... Does that take the record for longest subtitle? <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it's I didn't actually... The, the phrase is actually more appropriation than uh, invention. It was used, actually, that very phrase, mm-hmm. uh, in an ad that the arch-conservative Club for Growth ran we uh, we played that at the top of the hour. I yeah. see. Yeah. I see. So right. so we we had the frame of reference here. <laughs> yeah. right. But but I, I just want to go back quickly. This limousine liberal. It, this is the beginning of uh, sort of this reference referencing liberals as this elitists. It, it puts it where it used to be. You thought of elitists as the moneyed uh, money managers, the uh, industrialists, and and of the, those were the ilk of people you were describing. You used to describe when you talked to elitists. Now it's become kind of a values-driven reference, isn't it? Right. It, it, the, 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 the attack on the, so to speak, center-left or democratic-left as being pretentious and from the upper classes and traitors to their class and so on goes back a long time. You mm-hmm. can trace it back to the, in this country to the, the age of Martin Van Buren. But the new form of it that it takes in the 1980s, which is much more, so to speak, democratic, is really going after this whole swath of the middle class. Uh, particularly the, 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 the parts of it that live on the coasts and uh, that uh, are professionals and people in, 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 in similar jobs and the people who drive Volvos and uh, speak French and, and, and so on. That's really dates from the Nixon, uh, the Nixon Agnew years, and it, 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 it arises at the same time that this new phrase, Middle American, does. Right. Which is 1969, 1970. The Middle Americans were the were the man and woman of the year for Time Magazine in 1970, and begins to create this cultural divide, with what I think is an utterly bogus cultural divide between Middle America and the coastal elites. That's turned into the red and blue America picture that the right has very successfully uh, established now. So that most Americans believe that the country is more polarized than it was a generation ago. Though, if you actually look at political attitudes, the, the, the opposite is true. People, Americans, have, are more on the same page on most political issues than they were a generation ago. Well, it's a silent majority, right? The silent it, majority, that, that was what exactly. goes back to that. Yeah. And is this some come, uh, sort of a uh, mutation of the drug culture, drug wars, or I mean drug wars, but drug culture, uh, which Nixon was very effective at sort of drawing down uh, the, uh, as he referred to the people at Kent State as those bums and... And is this sort of a, a variation on that? It, it drew on certainly the divisions of, of the Vietnam War and the, and the, the depiction of uh, the, those who were against the war as a bunch of hippies, uh, smoked up, the smoked up, and so on. Yeah. The the uh, and, and middle Americans as people who supported the war. Now, by by the early seventies, that picture just simply wasn't true. I mean, yeah. everybody knew it. But the notion of what became the values issues for us began with the three A's, amnes- acid, amnesty, and abortion mm-hmm. of the Nixon years that have become the God, guns, and gays, the three G's of, of, <laughs> of, of recent times. And, and the rise of these issues and the way in which they, rather than the traditional issues around taxes and Social Security and government programs and health care, became uh, the, the litmus test issues that define the two sides, that, that you can date again from the 1970s. We're speaking with Jeffrey Nunberg, the author of Talking Right. And I'm wondering, what role did 
talk shows play in all of this? And so far, we're just talking about the language of politics and not getting into the media as much. Was, did uh, talk shows play a... a sure. A, there a were conservative talk shows going back into the, really into the 1960s and 70s, uh, this, this began. But it really picks up uh, in the 1980s uh, with the enormous success of Rush Limbaugh. Uh, and uh, and then his uh, his copiers and so on and picks up still farther in the 1990s with uh, the establishment of Fox News uh, and and not just Fox News but the movement uh, on the part of other competing cable news stations to the right so that by the 2000 election this is a huge force in American politics. Is I just want to ask about the the, the more the later version of this kind of right wing tilt. Isn't this kind of a demographic uh, marketing kind of uh, – I'm going to be cynical about this. It, it, there's, there, is a, there is a certain demographic that's more likely to buy certain things, and that's a demographic who also happens to be more conservative, more right-wing, and that's been as much of a, a driving force to this well, – well, By right-wing. demographic, you mean a certain uh, – Economic strata that tends to vote more, more, more likely to vote, more likely to buy uh, – you know. Uh, a higher income. Well, but that group, if you if you look at that group, that isn't necessarily those, those aren't necessarily people. Certainly on the on the on the on, the, on the, either on the left or on the right, uh, they they tend to be more politicized. Uh, they tend to buy all the products that uh, that I'm talking about in the, in the subtitle. But actually, yeah. um, they aren't. They, it isn't that the case that the Democrats buy more of these things than Republicans do. In fact, as I mentioned in the book, Republicans buy more brie. Yeah. Uh, than Democrats yeah. do it. It, it, it. Not surprising. It's a, it's uh, it, it's not an item you see in, uh, in working class neighborhoods. Uh, it's it's an item you see in upper middle class neighborhoods, food stores with with a lot of Mercedes parked outside. Right. Nonetheless, it stands in for this stereotype that the right has been attaching to liberals since the 1970s. It's it's pale. It's soft. It's runny. It's French. Right? What, <laughs> what, what, what better product to stand in for liberals than than, than Brie? And 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 similarly with Volvos, which actually. Uh, I, I think it's two or three percent more Democrats buy Volvos than Republicans do. Not not enough to make it a real emblem of of, of liberal voting patterns. Yeah. Well, we're we're I think well, Mike and I are liberal, and I, and I think you shade over into that uh, realm of things, right. Mr. Nunberg. So, but but we just you just finished undercutting liberals immensely. By calling us, uh, you know, uh, comparing us to Brie. And, and, and we all laugh about it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have a sense of humor I, 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 about language. I mean, I'm sure you're neither soft nor pale nor runny. Yeah, 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 no, 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 French, but, but, uh, I have a little uh, French. It's the stereotype <laughs> yeah. that the right has established, and That's... it's established by these products. Here's the most dramatic, one of the most dramatic figures in the book. And I, in, in, in the book, I spent a certain amount of time just looking at the quantitatively at the usage in the press and in the media of, of, of certain words. Look in the so-called liberal media, as, as Eric Alterman has, has called them, the New York Times, CNN, the uh, Washington Post, the L.A. Times, and so on, for the phrase working-class liberals. And it virtually, statistically, it's virtually inexistent, uh, where you do see people talking about working-class conservatives. Similarly, black liberals almost doesn't exist against black conservatives, which is a phrase you do run into. Why is that? You can be for... Maintaining Social Security in its present form, uh, you can be pro-choice, you can be in favor of an expanded government role in health care, down the list of the, the, the political positions that define liberalism. But if you don't have the marble countertops and, and, uh, and aren't driving an appropriate car, you don't count as a liberal. Mm. So it really has become a lifestyle term uh, or even a, a separate political gender rather than a term that denotes a political belief. 
I was just wondering if, because of our sense of humor, though, does that have something to do with the with the what what the Republicans or the conservatives are able to get away with when they when they call us uh, call liberals these names? Right. It, yeah. It's interesting because the right has two lines on the liberals. One, uh-huh. they can't live without irony, and the other is they're humorless. And yeah. Those 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 characteristics uh, seem 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 to live side by side. Uh, I don't think I think that the the, the 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 sense of humor, the particular sort of sense of humor that liberals have, and I don't by any means think it's restricted to to, to liberals. Uh-huh. Uh, works to liberals' advantage. I think some people have thought it was it was somehow inconsistent with being tough and confrontational, and that in order to be uh, to, to 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 go head to head with the Limbaugh's of this world and the O'Reillys, you had to be as blustery and as belligerent as they are. And I think what's what's turning out to be the case when you look at the programs that are successful on Air America, on cable TV like Olbermann or uh, or Stewart. Uh, you see that a very different tone is what works for liberals. That yeah. the, way, the way to counter Limbaugh is not by being another, another bar bully, uh, but, but by being the guy who makes fun of the bar bully. Well, and, and, you're, and you absolutely are. The t- I think the two most successful people at, at that uh, are the ones who are doing the best job of lampooning, and that is The Daily Show and The Colbert Report. Um, right. It, it, and, and Colbert has taken the approach to out O'Reilly, O'Reilly, and he's out any. In some ways, it's been very. I mean, I don't know how many people watch the program, but it does have a very a solid ripple effect. When when he starts talking about things, it seems that they start to sort of uh, penetrate the uh, the body politic a lot better. A lot right, more I think they're doing very well, and 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 they attract a different demographic, a yeah. much younger demographic. For example, o- o- O'Reilly's demographic is, you know, I think the average age is well over sixty of of of, of his viewers. And I think they may be head to head with O'Reilly in the in the in the ratings. I haven't looked at them recently, but they're nowhere near where Limbaugh and, and Hannity and those people are on the radio. That's where Franken and those people have uh, uh, weekly cumes, as they call it. You know the phrase yeah. uh, around a million, two million uh, for Air America, the biggest Air America programs. Uh, Limbaugh's over fifteen million. Uh, Hannity's in that neighborhood, and so on. So they've got a long way to go before they reach the kind of audience. That um, uh, that that the right wing radio people have been able to assemble. Yeah, but I, your observation is correct. I think that the humor is working. I, I mean, it, it's it's working very effectively for for liberals. And it's, I, making and, a, it's making us laugh. Right. Well, and, and just and I think right. it. And, I think and being it, confrontational in in, right. in in the way that laughter can yes, be, uh, right. and 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 often devastatingly confrontational, right. confrontational in a way that simply name calling doesn't doesn't work. We're speaking with Jeffrey Numberg, and the book is Talking Right. Should I do it? How conservatives, no, no. No, no. <laughs> How conservatives turned liberalism into a tax-raising, latte-drinking, sushi-eating, Volvo-driving, New York Times-reading, body-piercing, Hollywood-loving, left-wing freak show. What's that was late- well done. Thank you. <laughs> what, what's the latest word? Islamo-fascist? Islamo-fascist, yeah, is out yeah. there. It's, it's, um, it's this interesting word that enables uh, the administration to tie, not to, on, on, on one side, to tie the war on terror, as it used to be called, yeah. uh, to the last just war, uh, and to portray the administration in the role of uh, Churchill glaring over his cigar, and, uh, <laughs> and think of Islamofascism as this movement. You think of the old newsreels, the Frank Capra uh, right. propaganda films, right. the ink spreading across the map of right. Europe, the black ink, uh, <laughs> which we have to roll back. Uh, and it also creates uh, a putative connection among all these, uh, yeah. these different efforts, so that, for example, as the administration was at pains to, to, to insist on, the uh, arrest of these guys in London justifies, as they put it, the uh, strategy of having gone to war in Iraq. 
that, that, that see this is what we were all about now right. the, the, the fact that there's no material connection between the two is is suppressed in that use of islamofascism and it also makes it extremely difficult to raise any legitimate questions about policy and right you're and, an appeaser you're, you're, an you're an like the people who didn't pay any attention to hitler and yeah Mussolini we're, and so we're on, the neville right. chamberlains of the of right the, of the new era and well, and, and also, I mean, any attempt, and this is something that goes a little beyond what we're talking about, any attempt to understand the root causes of the, why people would strap dynamite to themselves and run into a, into a, a bus or a building, uh, we, we, can't, we can't know exactly why people are at that point. Right, and in fact, fascism is just a sort of a way of pronouncing evil right. uh, that has a secular cast and puts it in a high peak cap, exactly. but, but otherwise... <laughs> Uh, doesn't do any more work of explanation, particularly as people now see fascism. If you actually look at the nature of fascist movements, nothing could be further, but historically, nothing could be further from them uh, than groups like the Taliban, which were are, are, are religious and not secular, which, right. unlike fascism, didn't have a cult of modernity uh, and technology, are, are very different from fascism and don't make a cult of the state. Uh, uh, which but, is which is what essentially that's what fascism was the cult that's of what state. fascism and when you see that sort of thing in the Islamic world as as with Saddam Hussein it's it's singularly unmuslim uh, and and rather takes it, it finds itself at loggerheads with, with 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 Islam over the cult of the state and the need to subordinate religion to uh, to uh, this this devotion to the nation but it does in fact have the desired effect which is it 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 chokes off debate and makes it very difficult to raise legitimate questions right and which it is, also it raises bizarre uh, expectations some I mean, of the idea that we're going to roll the black ink back and that somewhere in a railway car on the deck of a battleship there's going to be a, a, a articles of surrender signed right uh, which right. which nobody not even the people on the right really think is the way that this this could possibly end right and, but until we start to talk about the reasons why someone would strap dynamite to themselves and run into a, onto a bus is is the only way we're going to get beyond this. I mean, right. and we'll never ever win a war against what was it against a, a verb or a, what is right it? Yeah. or or see it as a set of separate. I mean, the, 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 see yeah. this as, a, as a, it's certainly a set of common. There, there's a lot of commonality among these groups, but between the Shiites and 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 the Sunnis or the the guys in a in a London suburb making bombs, and the uh, the the the, the, the Mahdi uh, army in in uh, in Iraq or Iran. There are enormous differences, uh, and yeah. and Islamofascism turns these all into into, into a sim- single movement. In in very very quick time, I'm going to tell you my rationale. One of my things about all of this, which um, which I think is in some ways rooted in why we're experiencing why we we're seeing what we're seeing, which is that in some perverse way. Islam has become a political vehicle for people who have no other options, and that the only and we're talking about repressed countries all over the world, in which this is the only vehicle. It's a non-political vehicle, but it's the only vehicle to express their discontent, discontent, and their inability to affect political change. This has become the vehicle, and and it's permutated into this very violent reaction to uh, uh, suppression. Well, that, that that very may, well may be the case in, in in some areas. It also is the case that these are basically religious societies, like the Europe of the Middle Ages, where religion it suffuses every aspect of of of, of cultural and social life. Yeah. Uh, so that that's the only form of expression that anybody can have for any that anyone can have. Yeah. But uh, whatever it is, it's clear that these are very different situations. If you look at Indonesia and Iran and Iraq and, uh, and um, uh, Lebanon and, and, and so on, and, and, and London and Europe, uh, and that these people find themselves in shifting alliances and conflicts among themselves. And it, to use a term like Islamofascism, 
makes it sound as if this was just one world movement, uh, a, a, a dagger pointed at the heart of the West. Right. Directed by a few people. And that's right. Right. Um, and well, well, let's get to the part of the interview where we say, what can we do? How can we turn this around? Which is, what, how, how well, is I'm it that we... I'm just going to interject yeah, the yeah. George Lakoff uh, yeah. and, and his framing of the issues. Do you, what do you think about his... Uh, Solution well, to this. I think Lakoff has, has, has discerned, I think it's important how much of a role language plays. And there, 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 it's, it's possible very easily to exaggerate the role of language, and I think that's something Democrats and liberals have to be aware of. I, I give the example in the book of the way General Motors tried to save the Oldsmobile line in the 1990s with new names like the Alero and the Achieva and so on, and these new slogans, that's not your father's Oldsmobile. And, you know, people looked at the car and they said, that's my father's old school. <laughs> that, that was an end of it. So it, it isn't simply a question of language. Uh, and, and some people have pushed the framing further than it should be pushed. But I think the other uh, point that divides Lakoff and me is that Lakoff really sees this two nations, liberal and conservative, as different personalities, different uh, types of people, uh, takes that very seriously and says you're a conservative if you have a... Uh, what is it, strict father morality and a liberal yeah. if you have a nurturant parent morality and so on. And I think that plays into the hands of the right who have been saying the same thing uh, all along and have turned what, what were distinctions, of important economic distinctions, into these bogus cultural distinctions. And there's very little in Lakoff about economic distinctions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I think that's, that's where Democrats have to return to to, to move on to the, the earlier question you, you were asking. Democrats have to rediscover the true populist narrative that's the only real counter to the false populist narrative that the, that the right is giving. It's the, it's the kind of narrative that Clinton used very successfully in 1992. I'm tired of seeing people who play by the rules, uh, who work hard and play by the rules, get the shaft. Uh, it's a narrative that Edwards used successfully, that Gore used successfully in 2000, just after the convention, before he got caught up in other stuff. Uh, that Barack Obama has been doing. So I think there's, there's clearly a place for that narrative, and de- if Democrats have the nerve uh, to, to risk the charges of class warfare that come when they, when they, uh, when they bring that up, uh, and if they have the sense not to try to neutralize the Republicans' victories, in particular the linguistic victories, by trying to co-opt their language or say, well, we're, we're against big government, too, or, well, we're really not liberals, we're progressives, all of that plays into the Republicans' hands. Yeah. Yeah, every every time I hear a, uh, a a a Democrat run from the the phrase liberal doesn't even want to say it won't even be can't even be coaxed into saying the word liberal it just it makes my uh, the hair on the back of my neck stand up because it just why not right it, it's it's there's nothing wrong I don't have any problem with the word progressive which has a yeah. fine history in, yeah. in 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 American politics but to run away from the liberal again an automobile analogy I make in the book is. The, what, what Ford did in 1960 when it had all the trouble with the, uh, with the um, Edsel. Yeah. And uh, they stopped calling it the Edsel. They actually kept marketing the car, but put a new grill on it and called it the uh, Galaxy. And it did very well for a few years. <laughs> and I think Democrats are hoping that, well, if we just stop calling ourselves liberals and call ourselves progressives, maybe nobody will notice it's the same <laughs> car. Right? And, can we, and, can we, we can call them Galaxy uh, Democrats? Galaxy, <laughs> Galaxy with an I-E at the end. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it, what, it, what it does is it allows Republicans and the right to define the liberal label. And, and defining yeah. liberals as a lifestyle rather than as a political doctrine and, and, and ignoring the, the uh, economic differences here is precisely their goal. And Democrats who, who run from the liberal label validate all the stereotypes that uh, they, they, they validate that it's a dirty word and, 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 and play the Republicans' game. 
All right. Well, Jeffrey Numberg, thank you very much for being a part of Weekly Signals. Uh, the book is Talking Right, and you can check the website for the rest of the title, but uh, Talking Right, I'm going to say it. How conservatives turn liberalism into tax-raising, latte-drinking, sushi-eating, Volvo-driving, New York Times-reading, body-piercing, Hollywood-loving, left-wing freak show. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. It was fun. T- take thank care. You. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals. Weekly Signals.